Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Real Birth Podcast, the show where real parents share real birth stories and get really honest about how it went. You might be a first-time expectant parent, or on your eighth baby. Perhaps you're a birth worker, or maybe you just love learning about birth. Whoever you are, you are welcome here. This podcast aims to educate and empower listeners through the real stories of mums and dads. I'm Lucy Hill. I'm a doula, a mum of a toddler, and a complete birth nerd. Join me as I invite all kinds of parents to share their stories of pregnancy, birth and beyond. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the special bonus episode of the Real Birth Podcast. Um, I actually wasn't planning on releasing anything so soon after my last episode, but sometimes an opportunity just presents itself and it is too good to pass. So this special episode features Ashley Winning. She is the host of the VBAC Home Birth Stories podcast. VBAC stands for Vaginal Birth After Caesarean. It's a topic really close to my heart. And it is a safe and valid choice for most, if not all, women having a subsequent baby after a surgical birth. However, it's pretty rare that home birth is encouraged or discussed when it comes to VBAC. And it really can come down to families and care providers just not necessarily understanding the risks or the benefits of home birth after caesarean. And lots of people assume that it's not even an option. I've personally found Ashley's podcast incredibly informative and useful as I am somebody planning a vaginal birth after caesarean. And when she offered to share her story on the Real Birth podcast, I was just jumping at the bit to get recording. So we just cracked on and did it. After two caesarean sections, some birth trauma and being discriminated against during both her pregnancies, Ashley decided that her third birth would be a different story. She had a home birth VBAC with her third daughter, which was attended only by her husband and doula. Ashley has so much wisdom to share, not only through her podcast, which is committed to sharing stories and evidence-based information about home birth after caesarean, but she also runs a coaching business where she works with women to help them plan and achieve empowered births, however they may turn out, and that is called the Motherhood Circle. It was my pleasure to chat to Ashley, who is based in Australia, if you don't guess from her accent. Um, I'm really thrilled to have been able to get this produced and out into the world before my own baby arrives. I hope that you enjoy listening to Ashley as much as I did. Hi, Ashley. Thank you so, so much for joining me on the podcast. It's a real pleasure. Um, I've listened to your podcast an awful lot, um, and it's certainly been instrumental in in helping me think about my birth plans. So, um, yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you with me today. If you wanted to just take a moment to let the listeners know a little bit about you and what it is that you do in the birth world. Thank you so much for the warm welcome. I am from Australia, if you can't tell from my accent. 
And I, I mean, I now work in the birth world supporting women to have home birth. So I work with them in pregnancy. And as you mentioned, I have that podcast called the VBAC Home Birth Stories podcast, which is really niche as we were talking before. (laughs) And I selfishly started that podcast for myself when I was pregnant with my third baby. And it was because there were so many, there were a few VBAC podcasts, but not any designated for home birth and so I'd listen to a lot of stories but I felt that it just wasn't hitting hitting the mark for me and then I'd listen to home birth stories and that wasn't hitting the mark because I really wanted to hear women in my situation and a few years ago that was there weren't really women having VBAC home births and I feel like there's been a huge explosion so I guess that's where I kind of sit in the home birth realm now after my transformational experience Mm. and I guess I'm a little bit obsessed with home birth and birth and women in pregnancy and women breastfeeding and all that sort of thing so it's a really joyful place to be. Oh that's amazing and I also just wanted to say how I just think how fantastic and how courageous and brilliant it was that you set your podcast up kind of as, as almost like a manifestation like you hadn't had your home birth feedback yet and just to p- put you know so much love and energy into learning about that experience and inviting other people's experience kind of did you do you find that really helped set you in good stead for your experience it did because I definitely gravitated towards positive stories and I always thought if they can do it, I can do it. This is evidence to me that I can do this. Now I need to learn from these experts because they had done it right. So I needed to hear what did they do and how could I do that? And then I got to reach out to some experts myself who I would never have an opportunity to speak to one-on-one and I got to interview them and ask them all sorts of questions again selfishly for myself (laughs) and it was just wonderful because then I got to connect two people who I felt were at such high levels and I do that with little air quotes because you know they had PhDs or they had doctorates and they really deeply believed in physiological birth and undisturbed birth they understood the hormonal changes they had researched mammals and how mammals give birth and humans and were connecting all the pieces and I just thought you're really intelligent. I want to learn from you. So if I'm going to learn from anyone, I want to learn from the best and people who have been in the industry for 20, 30 years living and breathing. And so I was just listening and calling in all those wise women's stories, which is why now I passionately believe in women's stories and why I share women's stories because there's always a little gold nugget in every single story that a woman can take away and see that in herself. And there's nothing more inspirational or motivational than hearing somebody that you can connect with having the thing that you want so you have had three birth experiences obviously there is no VBAC without the cesarean experience Mm -hmm. so I know that today we were going to kind of talk about your home birth VBAC experience Um, I would love to share that with my listeners but did you want to just take a moment to talk about your other birth stories so that we kind of have an understanding of how you got to the place where you decided that a home birth VBAC was for you Sure. So my first birth, I essentially went into that here in Australia, we've got something like the NHS, but we call it Medicare. And basically, it's really hard to get publicly funded home births, but they've just started coming out recently across the country. But we don't have them here in Queensland where I live. And so it was never an option for me to consider home birth because I didn't know any single person who had had a home birth 
in my state. It wasn't a normalized thing. And so when you go, you go to your GP and you have a chat and you say you're pregnant and they essentially send you off to the local hospital. And that's pretty much where you kind of go to get all, you know, you have GP care and hospital care at a certain point. And so because of my size, because I have a high BMI, it's protocol for them to send you off for a test uh, for gestational diabetes. So essentially there was a bit of a mix up and I was told I didn't have gestational diabetes, but when I went to the hospital, I was told I did have it. And so I found out that different postcodes had different levels of how they test for gestational diabetes. That is insane, isn't it? It is insane. So if I was in Brisbane where my workplace was, I wouldn't have had it. But where my home is, I was diagnosed with it, which meant that I was then placed with obstetrician care in high risk and I had a big red stamp on my book and they had told me you are going to do all these things and you're going to have an induction at 38 weeks and you have to get checked because you'll probably have a big baby and all these sorts of things. And so I thought I was getting the best care for myself because I was with obstetricians and I was getting it for free. And the whole time I kind of felt like it was a bit cold and every time I would go to an appointment, I'd ask them about birth and they'd always say, we'll talk about that next time. We'll talk about that next time. And, you know, you had to wait for long periods of time. The whole thing just felt very clinical, very cold, but I didn't have anything to kind of, Mm. you know, no other experience. So I didn't really know any different. I didn't know any better. Eventually, I went down the induction line. I had my induction. I didn't know about the process. And I never actually went into labor or anything. Essentially, what happened was my cervix was hard, closed, and high. And I think I went through a two to three day period of having the gels put on, eventually, them putting in the, the hook, the, mm-hmm. the balloon, sorry, mm-hmm. to try to open me up. And that was really excruciating. Uh, process and then in the morning they came in about five o'clock in the morning and found that it hadn't fallen out and so I had a conversation with a junior obstetrician who said okay well it hasn't worked so you should come back in a day or two and I said well I don't see the point in coming back to go through all of that again which was a pretty excruciating experience I was really tired my husband had taken time off work I was expecting to have a baby I'd heard stories from other women who said Oh, once I was induced, I had a baby in an hour or two hours. And I thought, wow, you know, I'm going to have a baby like soon. I was so excited. I, you know, I talked through the process and said, look, I'd like to come back when I'm in labor. And they said, you can't do that. You have to come back in a couple of days. And they went away and had a conversation with um, the obstetricians and they came back and said, we've bumped all the surgeries and we got, we think we recommend that you have a cesarean this morning as first priority. And so I kind of just said, okay, fine, because I was so tired and I was defeated and that's what they were recommending. And I just handed all my power over. I didn't really understand my choices. And I was—I just remember being petrified going through that experience. I remember saying to my sister, because she was there, she just finished night shift as in, she was actually a surgery nurse. And so she was always pro-surgery. But I essentially went through the surgery. I survived. <laughs> It wasn't as bad as I thought it was. I mean, they, it was December, so they were all excited about their Christmas party that night. And so they spent the time talking about their Christmas party and it totally ignored me. But at the on the plus side, I kind of felt, you know, they're really casual. So clearly they're, you know, they know what they're doing. 
I'm safe, everything's okay. And baby was born and that was pretty much it. Hmm. And were there any implications, side effects, you know, whatever you want to call them, of this perceived gestational diabetes? No, my baby never had any sugar problems. One of the issues they look for is a big Mm -hmm. swollen belly. Uh, She was perfectly proportioned. She was 3.7 kilos. I think that's eight pound three. Uh, She wasn't super big. This is at 38 plus, Mm. I think about six by then. She was perfectly healthy. Yeah, no gestational diabetes signs or anything. So that was good. I ended up on insulin as well. So there was huge stress throughout the whole pregnancy about this gestational diabetes there was shame I blamed my being overweight there it was just a horrible experience to the pregnancy because it was all about gestational diabetes um Mm. but she was perfectly healthy so we moved past that and then I had to heal from my c-section and and move past I guess I had a lot of shame again from feeling like a failure I had a few friends made some comments that I didn't try hard enough and that they would never have a C-section and things like that. And being a first-time mum, I felt like I'd let my child down and I let myself down. And so um, I had a lot of guilt and a lot of mindset issues to work through. So when it came to thinking about having another baby, is that something that you wanted to try and work through or had you kind of not really realised that that's where your mind was at, you know, like you hadn't maybe processed it? I'm a type A personality and so I'm a pre-planner and I pre-planned everything down to the T with this baby. I got all the pre-tests, made sure everything was right with the first one and so I did the same process. I waited 24 months exactly from birth to birth to full pregnant. I was, everything's going to be perfect. This time there's no way that this can happen to me. I thought if I just did not get induced, essentially then that was the problem. And so I advocated for myself throughout the whole pregnancy. Um, I tried really hard not to get gestational diabetes, as if you can try really hard not to get it. (laughs) I pretty much just prayed to like the heavens or whatever. Please don't let me have it because that's what's going to be the thing that, you know, they're going to force me into induction. And I was really scared of having to fight and advocate, but I just thought they would um, see me as a person and they would hear that I'm educated they would support me and everything would be okay. And did you go through the same system, same kind of GP and same hospital as you did for your first child? Yeah, I did. So I I think I had a different GP this time, one that was more supportive and amazing, but she just mm-hmm. sent me straight. She was really amazing in postpartum, but it turns out she had a very, you know, straight and narrow view of what you should do and you should listen to the hospital. And she sent me straight back to the hospital because I wasn't going private. There was no other options discussed. And so off I went back to that hospital and I just thought, you know, it'll be a different outcome this time. And were they trying to influence you one way or another in terms of repeat cesarean or having a vaginal birth? There was a lot of influence, coercion, um, a lot of heavy conversations. They would say vaginal birth is the safest, but not for you. And we would have these conversations over and over again. And I was trying to understand what they meant by that. And so I had to dig deep, deep, deep every conversation. And we had a lot of conversations about how bigger women struggle to vaginally birth. 
we had conversations about our one doctor made a comment that if I did not have continuous monitoring through my labour, that I was essentially free birthing in the hospital, which at that time I was horrified that they would say something, you know, I was like, how dare you? (laughs) Who do you think I am? I'm not some crazy person. (laughs) But I was like, it gave me a really good insight into some of the things that they thought and what they actually deemed to be safe. You know, I knew that I was being discriminated against in a way because of my size, but I didn't actually understand that I was being discriminated against until afterwards. So, you know, I was having conversations saying to them, I feel like you're treating me this way because of my size and you constantly talk about my size. And so they're writing it down, but it, that, it didn't really click in my mind that I was being discriminated against. So I was just like, you see me as a person. I just couldn't understand that they couldn't see me as a person or that they didn't care enough to kind of, nobody asked me, why do you want to have a vaginal birth? Mm. How many kids do you want to have? Actually know me as a person and, mm. you know, see that I'm passionate about this. But essentially it came down to, I said, I'll, I'll waive all my rights. And so if anything happens, you know, and they said, you know, it's not worth the paper that you sign your name on it. I realised then it was all about a legal standpoint, what they felt comfortable with their registration. And it, I think it was just after 20 weeks, I said, I found out that the reason that they didn't want to was because they had junior staff working at the night times. And so they wanted to manage me. So they had senior staff on board. And I said, well, if that's the case, and it's just a staffing issue. And I asked the obstetrician who was a junior, I said, would you not feel comfortable working on me alone? She said, no. And I said, okay, well, like logically, why don't you send me to another hospital then where I can be cared for and have the birth that I want to have without freaking you out and making you feel uncomfortable because, you know, that's the problem, right? And they just laughed at me and I thought, okay, well, maybe maybe they're not worried about that. Yeah, it's very interesting when you start to dig a bit deeper about the reasons why people are uncomfortable and you know, sometimes it's evidence-based and sometimes it's just so not. It's um, it's all these other things, whether it's, like you say, staffing or litigation concerns or, yeah. I think that's a really good point is to just really, if you are facing any sort of resistance from any sort of healthcare professionals, really just to think about the reasons why, um, because sometimes there'll be the reasons that make you stop and go, okay, that's fair enough, and you go with that. And otherwise, and other times they make you go, what? So, yeah, yeah. I was anxiety-driven through the whole process and I would shake and cry on the way there, on the way home. It was really knocking me around and the whole experience was just a nightmare. And then I would have a week where I had to recover and heal from that. And just when I'm feeling good, yeah, I'm having a VDAC, then I'd go back and they would pull the same stuff. I'd be walking away shaking like, you know, my baby's going to die because they're always talking about all the catastrophic things that could happen that are so rare, but not explaining, but not actually breaking down the numbers why I was at high risk for these sorts of things for happening or the number was doubled, but it was like 0.002 instead of 0.001 or whatever it was, you know. Mm. And so I felt, you know, I was being pressured to do something that I didn't want to do. And it was a really, it was a pressure cooker situation. Mm. And at 36, 37 weeks, I got a call from the obstetrician and he said to me, um, you know, we're just not willing to take on your risk. And so you need to find a new hospital. You can choose from Brisbane or Gold Coast. And you can just hear the smile on his face, like as he's talking to me through the phone. 
And he waited right until I was about to deliver to nothing had changed with my medical history. And he left it right to the end to coerce me, to force me, because I suppose they probably have a very high success rate of getting women to do what they want. Wow. I mean, at 36, 37 weeks, like you can't make those kind of decisions. It's like you've been planning for that whole time. And then you just when you're kind of thinking, right, I need, I'm going to have my downtime now to get myself ready for this birth. You're suddenly faced with a decision of having to research a new hospital, meet, meet a whole new team, probably have to fight really hard again how stressful that's almost feels like that should be illegal like you should not be able to drop a patient right at that stage I I have been told that it's illegal but they get away with it on the whole risk factor thing but you know I suppose if you had the money in the will you could probably do them up but it's just nobody does because it's unethical for them to do that because we've even had the conversation like and I've even said, why don't you send me to a tertiary hospital then? You know what I mean? It's like, it's really bad. And at the time, you know, I'm vulnerable and I'm just shaking, like, where do I go? What do I do? I can't, you know, refuse this or refuse that. The only things I refused was a growth scan. I said to them, look, I'm going to have a baby that's over four kilos. So, and I'm happy to have a 4.5 kilo baby. And so grow scans no point and the only thing I said to them was um I'm happy to do continuous monitoring and labor but if you if you want that I have to have a wireless monitor okay and they said we've only got four in the hospital so I said well you'll have to make sure one's available (laughs) if you want it then (laughs) nothing had changed for my situation I had been honest and open about what my plans Mm. were I had communicated them I wanted a spontaneous birth I wasn't getting induced I was happy to have monitoring. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't doing anything radical, mm. but for them, perhaps it was. But I had been very honest and transparent mm. up like from the day dot. So what is it that they really wanted you to do? They wanted me to repeat or induction. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hey, you're having, you know, that I'd get a different junior doctor and that's they'd look at the book and they'd say, Oh, she's had a C-section. They would look at me and say, Okay, so you're having a repeat. And I'd say, no, if you read the book, I've had this conversation, I'm having a VBAC. And they would say, oh, do you know the risks of a uterine rupture? And I would say, yes, I do. And they'd say, oh, you really know what you're talking about? And I'd say, yes. And then (laughs) that was every single time. And then it got to the point where I refused to talk to junior doctors and I just wanted to see seniors because it was a waste of conversation having, you know, junior doctors that had no control or no... um, no say in anything Mm. and I went in really like advocating for what I wanted this is what I want I want you to agree I want you to sign off on my birth plan and so I went that route because I was seeking approval and I was people pleasing and I was like I want to be on your team we're going to work together and have this amazing feedback you know I thought that I learned about informed consent I thought that's what I was going for I thought that we're going to work together we're going to have conversations because that's what they promote and talk about Mm. But now I'm not sure there really is informed consent in a lot of those places because, you know, you hear about it time and time again. You have to kind of meet a unicorn who actually cares about you to kind of have those conversations. Mm-hmm. So I just spent my entire time having debates and conversations, you know, spinning wheels and getting nowhere because they were never going to support me. Yeah. 
Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So what happened in the end? How did your second birth go? So in the end, I ended up going to the Gold Coast and it was a lovely hospital. It was brand new. They were quite friendly. Um, They were a lot lot more positive, but they still wanted to do the same things. But they did actually, one of them actually asked me, why do you want to have a VBAC? I think VBAC is the safest option for you. I think it's a good choice for you. And so I was getting a lot better conversations and I was feeling a lot more respected. They still, the junior doctors still wanted to put me in for induction. They, I allowed them to do a growth scan and they still wanted to push me down for an induction. But then when I said, you know, this study doesn't make sense for me, they said, you know, I'll talk to my doctor, the head doctor. And they came back and basically said, yeah, Ashley's right. We should not be putting her in for induction. We should just allow spontaneous because that's the best success, you know, for her to have a spontaneous I ended up having a cervical sweep about 39 weeks, 39 and five days or six days. And then I went into spontaneous labor at 40 weeks. Exactly. I went into the hospital and I was laboring like a champion. I was so proud of myself. My body wasn't broken. I'd fought so long to believe that my body would go into spontaneous labor because I couldn't understand why they wanted to induce me the whole time. So I was just so proud of myself and I was handling the pain so well and going in the shower and my doula was there and my husband was there and it was such an empowering and powerful experience and I was so proud of myself. And then I felt waters kind of trickling down. I could smell it and I was like, oh, you know, and the midwife checked me. She said, do you want me to check you? And I said, yeah. And then she checked me and said, your waters have gone And I said, oh, okay. And she said, do you want me to, there's a little four bags. Do you want me to break it for you? And I said, yeah, sure. You know, thinking I didn't know anything. All I knew was if I get past not, if I have spontaneous labor, the baby will come out. Yeah. (laughs) That's all I knew (laughs) because I spent all my time advocating for uh, do not have an induction. So I didn't know anything about birth really, except for, you know, my mum did it. I'll do it and that'll be fine. I'll try not to have an epidural because I know that doesn't help and, you know, try not to do this, try not to do that. And so she broke my waters and basically it was my whole waters and so it was like a big tsunami and then I was in excruciating pain. I was out of my mindset. Then she put the screw on the baby's head. Do you, do you use those? Yeah, so the, um, we call it a clip. Yes, um, we call it a clip too, but I make a point of calling yeah. it a screw. Exactly. I was just going to raise that point, actually, is kind of the fetal scalp electrode. That's what it's called, FSE. Yeah, the whole, we're just going to put a clip on your baby's head to check their heart rate. And actually, it's a screw. It it screws into the baby's head. And yeah, I I think there's limited evidence as to whether it's actually a good thing, generally, Mm -hmm. um, and whether it's actually effective for its purpose. But yeah, that that could be a whole other podcast. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um but yeah okay so so that was something that they just kind of oh we'll just pop her yeah yeah okay yes and then I had a d-cell that didn't recover quickly enough and then I finally got off the bed and went to the bathroom 
but I was totally out of my bubble when I said to my husband, I knew he was the weak link compared to my jeweler. And I said, yeah, can you just get me the epidural? And the epidural was there within five minutes because they, they wanted me to have it on arrival, by the way. So wow. I knew it was and I got the epidural and then I was stuck on the bed. And then it was, I think there was another D cell and they all rushed in because she didn't recover quick enough. And it was, you know, we think you should have a cesarean because baby's up high, baby's ansenolytic, baby's turned. And, you know, I just remember looking at them thinking, I don't know what you're talking about. And they're doing these movements and I'm like, but like, I'm eight centimeters one side and I'm 10 centimeters the other side. Like my, I'm fully almost dilated. Doesn't the baby just come out after that point? I couldn't understand what was happening because all I know is you get to 10 centimeters and the baby comes out. Right. And they were saying, but you've got, you've got a cervical lip and we have to make sure that's not swollen and the baby's head's here. And, and yeah, well, if you don't go into surgery now, then this could happen. And I was like, okay, but what happens if I just wait? Like, can't I just wait? Like we're fine. And they were like, yeah, well you could, but you know, you predis, you know, better to go for surgery. And I said, I, I thought I was really clever because I was like, well, you know, maybe just give me an hour. If you check me every hour, if we do like a cervical examination every hour and we'll see how I'm going. And little did I know that cervical exams regulate like normally with every four hours here. Yeah. And so here's me saying I'll do one every hour (laughs) (laughs) so poor Ashley like and you know I just was so clueless and I'm they come in every hour and they're saying nothing's changed nothing's changed and you know I think I had a couple more and I waited six hours so they said nothing had changed with baby nothing had changed with my cervix and six six more hours kind of went by and I'd had a few more D cells and it just felt, you know, oh, this is getting a bit risky with baby, you know, D cells, because Mm -hmm. there's about four or five of them that rush in and, you know, they hover around you and, you know, talk to you and their eyes are all wide and stuff. And it's, it's kind of scary, but at the same time, I'm looking at them like you're the enemy and I do not trust you and I do not believe you, but I'm also tied to this bed and I have no, no way to get out of this. Mm. I felt, you know, I, I've literally had no choice. Like I was just stuck there. I did have a choice. I could have um, requested n- them not to top up the epidural, but at that point that wasn't really something I was thinking of. <laughs> so yeah. eventually after I think the fourth or fifth, I think I probably had four of them in total after about, and I was in labor for about 12 hours. Um, you know, I finally said, okay, fine. We'll go in for the surgery. And then the midwife, you know, we got some photos and the midwife turned around to me and said, it's all right. I had a home birth planned and it turned cesarean. It's okay. And I just thought you're a traitor. (laughs) I just felt like that was so horrible for her to say that because just because she had that experience doesn't mean that it was okay for me to have that experience. And I felt like she, because she hadn't had a vaginal birth, that she wasn't in it at all. And then after I'd gone through that experience, I kind of found out that, you know, the first cascade was her breaking my waters. And so I just, she was team enemy from that point onwards. Mm, yeah, I think certainly with um, having a slightly asynclitic head, that can be something that happens, can't it, if, you, if the waters are broken too soon, because <laughs> there's that moment where, okay, well, the baby was going to shimmy about and get in the right position, but it, but then it sort of stays in the position where maybe the water was broken and it it drops and that's that. Yeah, well, when I asked the midwife, 
in my recovery and she said well when the waters break and I just went straight away she knew that my baby was ROT because they were on the notes when I arrived they had already written down that I was my baby was ROT position so they knew the position they knew where my baby was and she still went ahead and did it for the sake Mm. of putting a clip on the baby's head so she'd done her job right for them but she wasn't supportive of me and I'd heard that midwives are supportive of women and they walk with women. And what I didn't realize is that there's a different, there's two different types of midwives. There's hospital midwives. And I'm not saying that all hospital midwives are like this because there are some amazing midwives working in the hospital system advocating for women. But what they were referring to was the private midwives that here in Australia, they don't work for the system. They do, they're still registered, but they work for that. They have their own business. And I think you have private midwives, independent midwives there too, don't you? Yeah, we do. Um, We don't have loads of them. I believe recently, in, in recent years, there's been a real issue with uh, the insurance coverage um, and, and it's been made very difficult for people to get insurance coverage and it has therefore made the prices, you know, really, really not affordable for most people. Um, and actually, even when I fell pregnant this time, you know, for, for a moment, I, I did look into independent midwifery and there was nobody within an 80 mile radius. There was nobody that would have come to me anyway. So wow. it, it wasn't even an option to have somebody. Yeah. It was like NHS or, or completely off grid. Basically there was no in between, but yes, there are some incredible independent midwives in the UK. Uh, they're just not in my area. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and here in Queensland if you want to have a home birth or anything like that it has to be with a private midwife or an independent midwife mm-hmm. so I'd learned a lot but I hadn't learned all there was to know not that I know all there is to know now but it's amazing how much more I've learned over the last few years mm-hmm. and how I think oh poor Ashley like going in there thinking that you know as long as you go into spontaneous labor you will have no problems I ended up having a very um uh, terrible situation in the surgery where the thing that they were warning me against was essentially the baby was so far down the canal that when they pull the baby out it can tear the uterus right so they knew this was a risk and actually I found a guideline from one of the obstetricians um, that said you should never remove a baby when it's so far down the canal only if you feel that the baby won't come out vaginally and so otherwise you're putting the woman at risk because you know there's a there's a possibility of them tearing you or the baby tearing you and so when they pulled her out they they said allegedly her arms swung open and and ripped me from the cesarean section that they did across right down through my cervix. And then so baby came out and it was all happy days and everything. And then um, basically my husband and my baby were rushed out and a whole team of people eventually got rushed in. There was people fighting and arguing over, you know, we should put her under, we shouldn't put her under. Uh, They were trying to stop the bleeding because I was bleeding out. They had to, you know, suture me up. So I ended up losing like 3.1 litres of blood and I was on the table for about four hours and I I thought I was going to die. It was the most traumatic experience that I'd been through. And, you know, that was a really hard journey for me afterwards because I had PTSD. I was traumatised so badly. I said, I'm never having any more children. We wanted to have four and I said, I'm never doing this ever again. It was just 
horrific and it was devastating because they said to me, you're never allowed to labour again. And I said, yep, no problems. And they said, but you can have two more surgeries. And I was just devastated. I bet you were. Oh, my gosh. I can't imagine that's you go from, you know, like you say, having the elation of going into spontaneous labour and thinking I've done it, you know, and then to have things turn that way must have been, yeah, so incredibly frightening. So I imagine the process from going from where you're at in that immediate aftermath of postnatal, you know, recovery physically, which I imagine was very difficult and emotionally to get to a point where you then decided I am having another baby and I'm, you know, I'm not going to do what they say and go and have a surgery. That feels like a really big journey. (laughs) (laughs) um so how did you get how did you get there and um yeah I'm just so interested I mean you've hugely educated you know at this point in your life and career so something's obviously taken place in those um months and years between those babies yes there was a huge transformational shift that I had to take as a person who's a people pleaser who doesn't want to do anything that's like different or risky. I try to be logical and reasonable. And that's something that I'm trying to change about myself because I no longer want to be logical or reasonable. I now want to pave my own life and not worry about what other people think. And I can say that now because I've been on this experience and this journey. But, you know, I started listening to free birth stories. I got across free birth stories. I started researching home birth as an option. I had debriefs with an obstetrician, with a private midwife who told me two separate things, being told that you were discriminated against because you were fat by the obstetrician and essentially saying that the surgeon that came on the day would have seen me and made a judgment call that this was the path that I was going down. That was deeply disturbing to me to hear that. It was devastating, but also it pointed out to me that I wasn't safe in that system and that it had been proven to me through the experience. I'd gone twice now and I'd had that experience at two different hospitals. And so it was made very apparent to me that I wasn't safe. And so I would be almost ludicrous to put myself back in that situation where I was told by a private midwife that they would be petrified of me with a special scar. So they were petrified of me with with just one scar, just a normal scar, that isn't really a big deal. They were so frightened because of my size. And imagine if I came in with a special scar, they would be freaking out to, you know. So I had to say, what do I think about this? What do I think? Is there people doing this? Is special scar crazy? So I started looking into my special scar. I was looking everywhere. I was looking in midwives, obstetricians. Mm-hmm. I was reading guidelines throughout my second pregnancy. I knew all of the Queensland guidelines for obesity, GD. I could recite them back and forth. I was completely, I understood everything that they were doing and all of the processes they were supposed to follow. And so I found some information and evidence from the obstetrician, the Australian and New Zealand obstetricians that said, a person with the special scar that I had is okay to labour. And so I was like, well, if an obstetrician says, you know, if the team of obstetricians says it's okay, that's good enough for me because Mm. they don't usually say you can do much. So I thought, damn, that's some really good evidence there. They're okay with it, but I can tell you what, they're not going to be okay with it. Mm. So that was enough for me to say, 
fine. And then I, you know, what is my rupture rate? And that was really hard to kind of find. But I accepted it to be around about 2%. And I thought I had to move through that. What, you know, what are the signs of rupture? What would I do? How would I, you know, how close am I to the hospital if there's an emergency? What happens if I rupture? What is the catastrophic result if I rupture? What are the what are the chances that that would happen to me? And so when I started to dig deep into it, I realised that the risk was quite low, and actually there was bigger risks to worry about yeah. in birth that nobody have ever touched on throughout the birthing experience. So once I moved through the uterine rupture, I moved on to other things like postpartum hemorrhage. You know, what if there's a nuchal cord or what if I have a baby who has shoulder dysocia? And all of those things felt really big because I'm not a midwife. Mm. I don't know what to do. The doula that I was looking at having, she wasn't a hands-on medical assistant. She was just there for emotional support. Yeah. Um, but it took me a long time to to say, okay, but my husband had kind of just said, you'll be right, you can do it. I think you should just free birth. Wow. And that was yeah, listening to so many stories. My husband is a type B personality okay. and he is a very calm person and just believes what will be will be. And so I felt, I mean, that's cool, but I also felt a huge responsibility was on my shoulders as a panicker, as a planner, yeah. that I was madly researching and reading as much as I could. And that's when the podcast came about that I could ask instinctive birth, physiological birth, undisturbed birth ask these people who are educated and see that I wasn't crazy because mm. I'm always looking, am I crazy? <laughs> Is it reasonable? And, you know, and of course, those were the things that I was up against. My mm. biggest problems weren't what would happen if I was in this situation that was crazy or dangerous or anything. It was always how will I be judged? What will people think of me? That was always my biggest concern. Right. I, I, my concern and fear wasn't so much that we would be unsafe because I felt like that was a much safer choice than me going and handing myself over to them again. And I trusted birth and I trusted myself, but it was always like, well, what if I have to go to the hospital and they judge me? Or, you know, what if the media finds out and they witch hunt me? It was always those fears that were the biggest for me and so I had to move past being a people pleaser that was one of the biggest things to move past because I don't want to be called a nasty name you know if something happens I guess I was catastrophizing that in a different way as well I guess something taking something like this into your own hands and your own responsibility requires so much delving into very uncomfortable places and if you're not strong enough or brave enough to go into those places of like you say looking up every single risk because we're not told about these things you know the risk of shoulder dystocia in just an average normal labor is like the same as the risk of a rupture for a VBAC, you know, but we're just not, that's not something that's brought to our attention. But when you start to delve into it, because you have taken a level of responsibility for your own outcomes in your own body. Yeah. It can take you to some places that, that can really shake you. So that must've been tricky, but obviously you were able to work through them and your partner sounds like he was happy to, to go there and support (laughs) you. (laughs) He was, and it's good. I always joke about him because we're the complete opposite, but he grounds me and I'm the pusher. And so I'm the one that's always, I'm the doer and think, you know, I'm always the the person that drives and he's always the calm rock. 
keeps me sane and and supports me and so we work really well together so that's nice and it was so nice that he believed in me that he had no evidence that I could birth vaginally because twice I had technically failed I mean I'd been told that from you know family members and things like that but he just said, well, why couldn't you? You know, I believe that you were duped in hospital. And so he was listening on in the background. And I just thought if he believes in me, then I can believe yeah. in myself. You know? Yeah. And that was really, really helpful. That's amazing. When you did decide to have another baby and you found out that you were pregnant, did you mm. engage with your GP at all? Was there any... Did you kind of enter into the system initially, have any kind of prenatal care, or did you decide I can't I can't engage and I for my own safety I need to be outside completely? Well, that amazing GP turned out to be like on my hit list of blacklisted of traders. <laughs> She's now my lovely GP again. But <laughs> she we had conversation and words about, you know, what was happening during my pregnancy. And she was very unsupportive of me and my choices. So I felt very betrayed by her. So it just happened that I fell pregnant in February 2020. And then March happened here in Australia and COVID hit. And we just heard about, because I was already pregnant, it was too late. And then there was no in-person meetings anyways. So I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but then I was able to just call up and have telephone consults with some random GP who was more than happy to refer me to get blood tests and things like that and ultrasounds that I wanted to do. And I would never speak to him afterwards. I just spoke to the ultrasound technician who said, everything's fine, baby's in this position, baby's doing this. And then I was fine. And I was able to get the bloods because I wanted to check my iron levels and all those sorts of things. So the whole COVID situation was perfect timing for me. Yeah, it sounds like a real like silver lining of all that. It, it was. You, you got to hunker down and not have to deal with the confrontation that yes. that really drives the anxiety. You know, as you mentioned before, you'd come out of your appointments like shaking, even though you knew what you wanted and you knew what you could do. Yeah. Um, it still affects you. You can be as confident as you want, but having somebody really fight you against your plans is always going to knock you for a bit. So so when it came yeah. to your birth itself, did you just kind of wait for spontaneous labour to happen and then you had a plan to be at home and just to kind of just let undisturbed birth happen by itself? Yes. So by the time that happened, I'd had conversations with my doulas and I said, look, I don't want any energy in my space that's not calm and grounded. I don't want anyone suggesting birth positions because I want to have an undisturbed birth. I want to have a physiological birth and I want to have an instinctive birth. I don't want my power taken away. I felt very confident in knowing that my body could birth a baby. I was unsure about the placenta, which is why I hired the doula. So because I'd never seen a placenta before and it's not I just and I also was worried about blood loss because I'd seen a lot of photos and I wasn't sure with the photos with the birth pool it makes it unsure and interviewing a lot of women on my podcast a lot of the time they transferred in after birth because they were in the shower and it looked like a lot of blood but it was just blood mixed in with water and things like that so it was really good to have a doula on the day and somebody who uh, allegedly had experienced a lot of home births as well 
So when I went into spontaneous labor this time, it was actually 38 weeks. My waters broke and I just jumped out of bed. It was four o'clock in the morning and I was, you know, shocked. I couldn't believe it. I felt so big and heavy the weeks before. This is the biggest I'd ever felt. And I just, third pregnancy, everything was, you know, not great. And I was just willing her to come at that point. I didn't know what I was having, but I assumed I was having another girl. I didn't mention in my last stories that this is uh, my third girl. And I went into labour and then I think labour started about 30 minutes later. So the waters broke. My husband was behind me clearing up the waters and then um, labour started. Before that, I was like, oh, no, I've got to get into labour within the next 48 hours or I'm transferring to hospital. I have a different outlook to that now and I wouldn't transfer to hospital so soon. (laughs) But at that time, that was my limit and, you know, labour started within 30 minutes and it was fast and hard. So as I experienced in my last labour, when the waters were breaking, it was actually quite excruciating Mm. and I couldn't get comfortable like I did in my last pregnancy, uh, last labour. I love being on the toilet. I couldn't feel comfortable on the toilet. I couldn't feel comfortable on the yoga ball on the bed was excruciating. My children were up and excited. They were recording me. They were, you know, duelering me, rubbing me. You're doing so good, mum. That was so amazing. But as an empath, I can feel people's energy. So I could just feel the excitement from everyone. And it was just giving me the shits. <laughs> I got my sister to come. I was just like, get, get away it, from me. Get people. out. Yeah. <laughs> especially when you're in pain and you can hear people breathing and they eventually went. And I think, um, my husband started getting the birth area ready because we weren't expecting to for this to happen for two more weeks. And after about two hours, I got in the birth pool and that was actually quite nice. My doula arrived. I was really needing that, talking through, is this normal? Is this okay? Is everything okay? I was inside, I was freaking out. And the only way I can explain how it felt was if you've seen Twilight and you see Bella, and she's getting transformed. And on the outside, she's like peaceful and they don't even know if she's alive. And on the inside, she's like screaming and everything's <laughs> breaking. And that's what was happening for me. I look back at photos of myself and I'm so calm and relaxed and I'm breathing through and inside I'm dying. And I'm looking at the door like, don't ever do this. This is the worst thing ever. <laughs> thinking I need to transfer. What kind of person doesn't get an epidural? And, rah, rah, rah. and I was just in a really bad space mindset wise. Eventually I started to breathe and I was holding my daughter's hand and I had the music come on and I was in the pool and eventually the pain just went away and I was looking at my affirmations. It just something clicked and I think it was my body dilated because I'm a fast dilator. I dilated with my second to 10 centimetres within five hours of labour. So I think that, you know, it probably took like three to four hours this time. And once that had finished, what had happened was, I started to bear down and push. So I had another posterior baby. So I imagine I was fully dilated. And what was happening now was my body, every third contraction, third or fourth, was bearing down and pushing. Mm. So I would get on my hands and knees over the birth pool and, mm, you know, and pushing out poo. And, you know, my husband wasn't exactly happy about that, but it felt really good for me. (laughs) People don't talk enough about that. (laughs) He's like, it was disgusting. And I'm like, oh, well, that's part of birth, you know. Yeah. I don't care. Signed up for this. And every other contraction was just relaxing and just moving through it and breathing through. Mm -hmm. And that went on for about 10 hours. 
And wow. so I think in total I had about a 13, 40-hour, 14-hour labour. And that's and so interesting because I think, you know, had you been in, in a hospital birth centre wherever, as soon as you're kind of any signs of pushing, as soon as that had gone over kind of, what, two hours, they probably would have been, right, that's not, we can't deal with this. But it sounds like actually it wasn't every contraction and, and your body was just fine. doing it in its own way and in not like a a robotic where we flip the switch now and it's pushing you know and it's if your baby was posterior you know your your body is probably working to a expel but be slightly repositioned during every contraction so of course it's not going to be just like bam 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 wow yeah and that's why in the hospital system they were looking at me like "Mm, you know it's not really going to happen because they don't understand posterior birth they don't see them enough because they intervene too much and I did actually do a bit of research after this birth to learn about it a lot of people are trained midwives as, as well that they don't understand posterior birth. So after a couple of hours of that sort of behaviour, many midwives will transfer a woman into hospital and say, we've well, been pushing a bit too long now. You know, I think we better go to hospital to get assistance. But it is very normal. It's a variation of normal. And your body is just turning the baby. You could see it, you could see it on my belly. The baby was turning and coming down slowly with a lot of effort on my behalf, mm. but also I was also having big gaps in between the contractions. So it wasn't back to back for a couple of minutes. And I didn't know this at the time, but my doula told me that there was like 10 minutes in between contractions. So I was having ample space to recover and my body worked perfectly and amazingly to allow me to get enough energy to then go and do the hard work that it needed to do. Isn't that incredibly clever? Like your body knows mm-hmm. that this is a you know, a situation that isn't as straightforward as just go, go, go. And actually we're going to do this, but we're going to do it slow and steady and you are not going to be able to do it unless you rest. So you're getting those micro rests in between. Mm -hmm. Amazing. At what point did it start to feel like something had changed and, and baby was actually really coming? Well, my husband was in the birth pool and my doulas had gone outside and I had this big feeling of a big push. It was as big as like, a baby's head that was coming down a big poo like a big baby's head but I didn't actually connect the the dots at that point I just thought it was a huge poo (laughs) size of a baby's head (laughs) and it's coming down my back down my spine I could feel it my tailbone coming down and it just felt so awesome and amazing and then all of a sudden I thought oh something feels a bit different and I said to my husband can you put your fingers in and see and he looked at me like And I said, go on, just put your hand in there and see what you can feel. And he put his hand in there and he said, oh, it feels like a kiwi fruit. Do you know what a kiwi fruit is? (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, okay. And he said, well, it could be an organ though. And I was like, oh, (laughs) God. (laughs) We were clueless. (laughs) And so I thought, oh, maybe um, maybe it's my pelvic floor from pushing so much, you know. But of course, it was the baby's head, and the kiwi fruit was her hair on her soft head. <laughs> I laugh about it now because it's completely hilarious. <laughs> and you know, it was only a couple of contractions more before I could actually feel her crowning, and then it was in, out, in, out. And I knew that was normal, so I just allowed that process and breathe through the process, and gave it a little bit of a push to help her through. And eventually, you know, it felt like paper tearing they talk about the ring of fire but for Mm. me it was like paper tearing and I thought oh this is going to be a big tear you know that was one of my biggest fears as somebody who'd had a cesarean birth 
one of the one of the fears is oh you know what if I I know what that's like but what about if I really damage myself down there you know she popped through and everything was fine and then my doula like my husband was sitting there and my doula said don't touch the baby's head move away from the baby to my husband I thought oh what's happening here and I felt a bit started to go into that reptilian brain and question I know when you have breech births you're not supposed to touch them but I've I've never heard that you're not supposed to touch them when they're born in the the water Mm. and it really started to get that adrenaline push and then all of a sudden I had no contractions because my birth had been disturbed and the adrenaline had come into my body and I was now very aware and worried about what that could mean and um her head was out and her shoulders were out but she was stuck at her tummy and I was like I've never seen this before because all the babies just come out and I've never seen this what happens I was looking at my doula and she's like I don't know <laughs> I was looking at my husband I'm like can you pull her out he he didn't really want to hurt her and yeah. I was like okay well I guess I've just got to push her out on my own and you know I pretty much black or purple pushed to the point where I was pushing so hard that I feel like I almost blacked out but it was only for a minute or so and then she just slid out and then my husband grabbed her and popped her on my chest and I was just so happy that she was here and I found out she was a girl and I was just so happy and she was sitting on my belly and I, I had a really short umbilical cord or she did and then my doula kind of came around and again kind of said, oh, I'm just a little bit worried about her breathing. I recommend you call an ambulance and I said, okay, fine, you know, that's what I'd hired her for. And then we kind of went through a bit of a intervention, you know, the ambulance kind of came, checked baby. She was perfectly pretty, like he cleared her and she was fine, breathing perfectly fine. But then there was a, oh, that looks like there's a lot of blood in the pool. You should get up and we should do this. And so we're going to jab you with this and we're going to do this. And four ambulances later, because they have a bit of a protocol that I think over a certain blood loss, they you must need to transfer with a blood bag. And so I ended up waiting for about two hours for all these ambulances to come and all these questions and eventually got transferred to hospital for a manual removal of the placenta and had they given you the injection to try and get that to happen as well yeah but at that stage you've gone from such a you know an undisturbed situation I suppose to the the oxytocin is just like gone right at that point when all these people come in the room so yes yeah I had all of these random people there and I had they were all really lovely all the guys were lovely and there was this one lady she was a bit you know, what any what prenatal care did you get? And I said, well, I got this test and I had this test and I had that. And she goes, well, what what hospital appointments did you see? And I said, well, no. And she's like, okay, so you had no antenatal care, no prenatal care? And I was like, no, I just said I had this. She's like, I'm not judging you. I'm just saying. And I'm like, but I did have prenatal care. Yeah. I just didn't, you know, I had all the same tests. I mean, I'm trying to have this, I'm having these conversations. I think they probably gave me, you know, injections and things, but nobody massaged my belly or anything like that. As if a, if a midwife was there, there could have, there would have been a, I think that there would have been a different situation. We could, it would have been handled a lot calmer. Um, obviously you wouldn't have random strangers coming in and all, all that disruption. But I think probably at that point, the adrenaline spiking as much as it did and because I'm an empath that feels people's energies yeah I think that that was probably a I'm not sure you can recover from that sort of situation after she said there's something wrong with the baby as well yeah so 
I did go to hospital and I had the manual removal. They tried to do it manually with no pain medication and they put their hand in three times and I said, I do not consent to this. I want to be put under and I want you to do this. And I, because I'd had that last experience, I didn't want to be awake. Yeah. I wanted to go under and they did that for me and I woke up and that was kind of the experience that I had. That's a real whirlwind at the end, isn't it? I kind of, you know, I, I, I didn't believe there was trauma at the time, but now I know there was definitely trauma. Mm. There was a lot of um, me having to work through because baby ended up in special care because hubby came into the hospital and they pretty much their procedure is to take babies that are born home birth usually. We'll take baby to special care just to check because it's not the usual sort of thing. And hubby gave um, consent and everything and she was in there for a couple of days and ended up having jaundice and it ended up being a bit of a, they were respecting my wishes in hospital, but then I had to advocate for my baby and go through a different experience. And it was a very healing experience for me in the hospital because I felt this was the first hospital that I went to where I'd been kicked out of. And they were really sincerely sorry that that had happened to me and they really wanted to make a difference. So while I went through that experience and I would have preferred to have been snuggled up at home in my bed with my baby, which is what, you know, is... the the home birth dream, I am so grateful for the experience that I had and also for the fact that I felt healed from the trauma I'd experienced and I don't feel that I don't have those horrible feelings that I had about those staff anymore. It's just Mm. that's, that's what they're like. That's what some of them people are like and it's not personal. It's just how it is and that's kind of how I got to move through that. Yeah. So once you'd had your surgery to remove your placenta, were you then able to visit your baby in the special care or or was the separation just total? There was a lot of advocating because one of the ladies who worked in the special care unit was a bit flustered and she was older and she was getting overwhelmed and there was a possibility of these twins possibly being delivered and taken to special care. So I they were very breastfeeding friendly and so... I wasn't able to physically go and see her because I'd lost three litres of blood again. So I just wasn't capable of doing that. They had to either um, wheel me in a wheelchair or they had to bring her to me. And so I was at the mercy of the one staff member who was looking after my baby. So I had to like beg her to bring the baby. And at the same time, she was forcing me to formula feed her as well because when they took her to special care, um, they put her on the... This, uh, is it called CPAC? They put her on a machine where they put um, air yeah. into her chest because she yeah. had that uh, breathing. She was only on there for 12 hours. But when they did that, they also put her on glucose. Right. And so you give consent, but you don't know what you're consenting for again. And so that meant that they were then worried about her having sugar problems, which meant that they wanted to formula feed her, which meant that I had to have a conversation with a pediatrician and say, logically, that doesn't really make sense. I've got colostrum. I can feed her. But again, they wanted to measure how much she was getting because they were worried about her having sugar level problems. And I'm trying to have this conversation with somebody after I've had no sleep and I've gone through this process. (sighs) It was just it was just a very challenging situation because I felt like my child had been kidnapped and I was held hostage in my bed and I was at the their beck and call essentially. Yeah. And I knew that the whole hospital was talking about me because I was this woman who had had a free birth 
and everyone was whispering in the in the hospital and I had random people coming up I heard your story oh my goodness you're so brave and I had some midwives saying don't you dare do that again and I can't believe you did this and it was a really surreal experience because in a way my deepest fear came true I was just gonna say like (laughs) how how did you find that in that your biggest worry had been oh they'll judge me and they'll talk about me and then you're there and it's happening yeah did you care as much as you thought you would when you were there I felt I definitely went through like she was she was 4.5 kilos so almost 10 10 pound so there was all there was a bit of shame around that that she was such a big baby my my last one was 4.1 kilos so they'd gone up 400 grams each time so it was a natural progression and there is no shame in it's just because I had been discriminated against because of my size I felt Um, responsible and so then I was trying to understand why is she in special care I've done this and then when I realized after I spoke to the PD and everything happens so fast there and it feels so emergent so after about three or four days I sat down with a pediatrician I said now why did she have this and why did you do that and why did this happen and they said it was a precaution it was a precaution it was a precaution okay and so when I when I could see it like that I was just when they said she can leave the nursery, it was, oh, we'll see after this test is done and 48 hours and she won't be out for a week. And so you're trying to plan, well, when I come out of the hospital, I'm going to have to get in and out of the hospital to see her. She's, it was very, very hard having to think of all the logistics and being separated for the first time from my baby. Yeah. So there was a lot going on and I was only getting two hours sleep because I was breastfeeding her. I was, I was determined that if she was going to be having this formula that they forced me to give her that I was going to breastfeed her first. And so I was literally getting no sleep because once you finish breastfeeding um, after an hour, then you have a, you go back to your room and you have maybe, you know, half an hour before they're bringing her back in. And so it's like, it was, and then because I'd lost so much um, blood, I was very tired and fatigued and I couldn't breathe. And because I'd had that experience, before in my last um, birth I knew the signs and I said it's just I need extra blood or I need iron and they said well it could be that you have something in your lungs or you have something with your heart because you never had any prenatal care even though I did um, then we're just going to take a precaution in case because we don't want you to die in the middle of the night so it was all very dramatic because I'd had a free birth and me being the people pleaser, I just said, I oh, fine, you know, I'll just go along. So I was getting wheeled across the, ho- the hospital at 12 o'clock at night, getting put into a scanner and having a heart ultrasound and all of the tests to find that Ashley was right. I just needed iron. <laughs> yeah. So how long were you and your baby in the hospital and when did you get to go home together? Uh I think we were in there for about five or six days because she ended okay. up getting, she was borderline again. Um jaundice and so that was a new experience but looking back at a photo of my firstborn she was she was the same she definitely has jaundice as well and that corrected itself naturally nobody picked it up but you can see in the photo she had that orange skin so here's my baby he's 4.5 kilos and we're going into the special care unit and there's all these tiny little sickly babies and it took for a a senior doctor who was about 60 who was walking around you know the special care to give authority and saying what was happening and she said 
that baby's not sick. She said, we're waiting for the test results, but I can guarantee you that baby will be out today. And I was like, what? My <laughs> baby will be out today because the junior pediatricians, they they were very cautious. They were learning. They didn't want to get in trouble. When you're dealing with new pediatricians, like they've probably been doing it for 10 years, but they were very new and they probably weren't registrars yet. Mm. They're very overly cautious. And so I could see the difference there, but it just... It's a, it's a whirlwind of an ex- experience. And so when we finally got home, that was where we really started. And, you know, she breastfed. She only just stopped breastfeeding in January this year. So we breastfed for over two years. She was the healthiest, happiest little baby. My husband bonded with her so well because he caught her. And I feel like they had a special bond because of that. I feel like he took a lot more responsibility. And I think him being able to be close with us, through and helped me through the the labor because he was in the birthing pool. Mm. I feel like that had a healing process on him. He's not able to articulate his emotions and his feelings, but I could see that there was a huge change around for him. And it was just a really beautiful experience for our a whole family of having closure and me growing as a person, because I, I promised myself no matter what experience I had, of course, if there was trauma, I had to work through it and I had to give myself the grace, but I wasn't going to be hard on myself. And so I had to let go a lot of the stuff. I had to forgive myself, forgive the situation, forgive the people. And just it was what it needed to be because Mm. I wasn't going to continue with trauma and be hard on myself for decisions that I made or things that I didn't know or, you know, it's not about being perfect. It's about just living the life that you best can and, that was a complete different experience for me this time. Yeah. So much of what we do, if if you can make if you can make your decisions that and you know that they're not fear-based, they're because they are what you truly, mm. truly want, then then that's all we can really ask for ourselves. And and like you say, you give yourself the grace. I think that's what I think a lot of people should take away. And what I'll take away is working through those things that have happened to you in the past and not allowing them to be part of the basis of any future decisions because they are past experiences. Um, Do you feel really proud of yourself for Mm. being able to advocate and get that experience? And like you say, all these people that are so, it's so kind of risk averse. And of course, you know, we have to bear those things in mind but to be able to kind of say, I did it and I did, I'm part of the 99 point whatever percent who who everything is great, you know, mm. must just feel really good. Yeah, it felt really good. And people always say, people do say you were just lucky. You were a lucky one. And I don't believe that in luck. I believe that you create your own luck. You know, people have always said, you're so lucky that you've got your husband. He's so amazing. And I'm like, I'm not lucky. I went through a lot of duds <laughs> to find my husband. <laughs> you know, I made sure that I found the right person for me and the same with his birth. And it wasn't perfect, but I made sure that I could get to the hospital safely. I had things in place and birth is not a perfect experience. There's always risk, but there's risk in going to hospital as well. And so I am so proud of myself that I was able to work through the fear. I'm proud of myself for advocating for myself in hospital because that was really hard to do. And I'm proud that I didn't just let myself crumble and turn my blinders on and say, oh, well, you know, I'll just give up. It was a real evaluation of what are my choices? What are, what are the options? What do I believe in myself? But 
more than anything, I've come, I feel like I've come home to myself and that suppressed Ashley. Now I homeschool my children and I would never have done something like, I've always wanted to, I always used to make jokes, like maybe I'll homeschool my kids one day. And there's so many new things that my mind has been opened up to because I was willing to open my mind and look at alternatives and that's the kind of person I want to be. I don't want to live unconsciously and do what everyone else does. I want to live a life through my own choice and my own doing. So I couldn't be any happier that we are where we are and it's a true gift. And, you know, those experiences were not lovely. They were not positive, wonderful experiences, but I wouldn't be who I am without those experiences. So I thank those experiences and I'm grateful because I get to look at my birth as a positive experience of something that was magical and amazing and I talked to my I've got three daughters I talked to them about birth as you know you can do it you pain is nothing pain is in your mind you can get through this and women are designed it's such a beautiful gift I I could ramble on about it all day it's just it was a gift that I had to have because I've got three daughters and now they get the gift that keeps on giving Mm. And to have a mother as well who can speak so openly and so positively and so authentically about the reality of the situation that, you know, they may find themselves in one day and having that preparation and that knowledge and the trust in themselves is really important. So that's amazing. I mean, I know that you work with women all the time now who are planning their own births, you know, whatever those might be, but I imagine a lot of people that gravitate towards you are those kind of home feedback stories, people who are aiming for that. Uh, what What would be kind of your top piece of advice or maybe your top two or three tips for somebody who is planning a vaginal birth after a cesarean and, wherever that might be, uh, just those, any kind of nuggets of advice that you might have for them in order to give them a positive or an experience that is meaningful for them? I think mindset is one of the biggest things that you can harness because even if you're in excruciating pain, you can work through it if you've got the right tools and you believe in yourself. A lot of women transfer into hospital because of the pain. So if you're able to have a wonderful mindset and have some things that you can rely on you'll be able to get through that but also it'll stop you from transferring before birth because if you're spiraling into fears and worrying concerns and allowing your auntie and your mum's judgment or worries or fears impede on your birth space you're not going to be able to go into that birth and a lot of the women I work with the people pleasers they're usually Ashley's who you know the same as me two, three years ago, who were going through that avenue, who have come from a very similar experience and who want that nurturing support. So having a really good support circle around you, whether that's your friend, whether it's a doula, whether it's a midwife, but making sure that they're, they're the right birth team for you. So you need to listen to your intuition. And I think many of us know how to listen to our intuition, but sometimes we silence our intuition. We ignore it or we um we talk over the top of it and talk ourselves out of our intuition so Mm -hmm. the third one would be listening to your intuition because in birth that's one of the things they're gonna your body's gonna tell you your mind's gonna tell you your intuition's gonna tell you if something's wrong and you have to learn to harness and listen and connect with your intuition um i think the combination of those three uh probably a good starting point and I think also learning about instinctive physiological and undisturbed birth yeah amazing 
Well, that's incredible. I feel like we could, um, yeah, we could talk about all those different things for for the whole day or uh, night in your case. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, but I thank you so much for sharing those stories. And if if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, find out more about what you do, maybe work with you, what's the best way for them to contact you? Okay, so if you are having a VBAC and you want to check out my podcast, it's called the VBAC Home Birth Stories Podcast. You can search it in a podcast player. And if you would like to connect with me, Instagram is probably the best way to get onto me. Uh, Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-Y, L winning. And just send me a DM because I will resp- I'm will. i the one who manages my Instagram and I will respond to you and we can have a bit of a chat and see where you need to go. Even if it's just me giving you a couple tips or if you want to jump on a call to see if we're a match made in heaven. Perfect. Thank you. Well, I'll link to all your stuff um, when I post this episode too. So awesome. thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for holding space for me and having me share my story today. I appreciate you so much. A huge thank you again to Ashley for sharing your story with us and in particular for opening up the home birth after cesarean conversation in a wider context. I know that I personally have found it really useful in both my work with women as a doula and planning my own birth which is now pretty imminent. If you would like to get in touch with Ashley I'm going to link her social media when I post about this episode on Instagram and Facebook or you can search for the VBAC Home Birth Stories podcast and you will find her. Thank you so much for joining me for the special bonus episode. Please feel free to share this with someone you know, someone who may find it useful. As I'm going off on maternity leave properly now, um, you can remember that we have got 30 episodes that you can catch up with and you can always get in touch with me via my social media. I'm still going to be active on there over the next kind of six months or so before I think about the next season. Um, That is Real Birth Podcast and I'm on Instagram and Facebook. Until next time, I wish you all lots of love and happy birthing and happy learning and I will see you soon. Bye.